Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Summary. And in the case is now, it's going to be a hot weekend. We have our full panel to talk about all the hot stuff that's going on in our world. It is certainly, certainly hot as it relates to COVID coming back, but we have our full panel to talk about that. That means Claire Zauke, our healthcare director, is with us. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to see you. And Robert Craig is with us also. Robert is the executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Happy summer, everyone. Oh, it's been gorgeous out, but uh, by the time y'all listen to this, it's uh, it's going to be a cooker for the next four or five days. Uh, enjoy it. State Fair is starting for the first time in two years. And ooh, that uh, leads us all to have concern because it is starting in the middle of a massive resurgence of COVID. Um, we here at Citizen Action have been having a lot of internal conversations with our staff and everything about sort of revisiting all of our policies uh, because for a lot of us and in many parts of the country, we are back in red uh, and pretty much back to a state right before uh, vaccination. Robert, um, the latest on this critical situation, which also I'll just add before I go to you, finds a lot of essentially mask, if not mandates. Uh, the CDC is essentially advising people to be wearing masks inside, whether you're vaccinated or not. And a lot of businesses are, and local governments are um, either, if not starting to bring them uh, back, uh, seriously considering them. Robert. Yeah, so I know that Battleground Wisconsin listeners outside of our right-wing trackers are well-informed on this and certainly watch the news. So I'm not going to dig into all the tales. I want to get to the question you don't hear on the news, which is why this is happening. I mean, the magnitude is horrendous and hospitalizations are two or three weeks behind these changes in threat level. So you will, won't see it, but what you see in Arkansas, what you see in Missouri, what you see in Florida is heading here, which is completely jammed up hospitals again, okay? And a lot of young people being infected. So anyone who says it, and I've heard it from mainline Democrats on cable news, uh, that children are not really impacted by this are wrong, and adolescents are wrong, and it needs to stop. That's that you could make that argument with the first version of COVID-19, what they call alpha, but not the Delta variant. So here's the deal. We have two different phenomenon. We have a modern conservative movement, which is completely heedless and politicizes everything and does not care what the consequences are, is willing to kill their own followers in order to score political points and to build power and grab power. And they've taken over the modern Republican Party, and it is not just Trump. Uh, and I'll get to a little bit, say a little bit more about that. But the second major thing is we have a Democratic Party, while at least interested in science and at least doing, trying to do a lot of the right things, which is both being sabotaged by the Republicans, that is true, but also is not willing to do all that is necessary in many ways for their own political calculations. So they have not taken politics out of this either. And entirely, though it's a totally different level of magnitude and uh, 
and problem than what we see on the Republican side. They're not even, they're different phenomenon. They're so different. But the CDC opening everything up in May by telling unvaccinated people they could take off their masks, took off masks for everyone and it spread to this virus. And that was not science-based. That was politics, whether the CDC director's political calculation or someone else's, I don't know. I have no reason to believe it didn't come from the CDC director, that the White House, like Trump style, manipulated this. But the result is the same. And we've seen that frankly, in Wisconsin, many other Democratic states. In fact, some of the better states are Republican moderate-led, like Vermont and Ohio, better, relatively speaking. So let me dig into each one real quick and then pitch it over. And that is, as far as number one, the right wing, this really does, is not just Trump, and it goes way back, and it goes back to corporate America, modern propagandistic advertising, denial that things harm us, like climate, like cigarettes, like lead paint, you name it, like pollution. And that, that, so the, the, the move to disinformation, actually you can, you can trigger it back at least to the 1920s, the modern form, and modern advertising, which came out of World War I propaganda, but it, it's accelerated. And that, and we have built, they have built a movement and funded it. And the billionaires, the corporate class has created, have funded this kind of movement and they will deny any fact. And it is so bad that if you see kind of conservative, but somewhat sensible governors like Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas going around and trying to explain to people being yelled at by his constituents with absolutely crazy stuff because they have been lied to and humans follow the group. You follow your side and these folks are just following it. And so a lot of the way we try to cope with that as progressives is not functional. More facts don't do it. More science doesn't do it. So there's a role for that. We need a strategy, and the Democratic Party doesn't have one. On the Democratic side, you know, we're not doing nearly enough. There's much more we could be doing in local governments in the state of Wisconsin with this governor. It's not only this governor, which is, but, but decisions have been made. One big thing is opening the schools. Mask mandates in schools, CDC guidelines say you should. Says no, we should all public, enclosed, indoor places, masks, and schools, masks. Are we doing it in the state? Are Democratic districts doing it? Are Democratic, all Democratic politicians standing up for that? No, because they're afraid of the politics. Well, and to the politics, particularly here in the state, I mean, we saw legislative Republicans, Claire, this week, and Claire, you're a former school board member, essentially completely tie the hands of the UW system and their ability to try to really effectively uh, protect against COVID. Uh, get your thoughts on not only the activity of uh, the legislative Republicans, but just your broader thought on where we're at in the situation. It's disappointing, and but uh, feels totally par for the course of how the Republican legislature has behaved throughout this entire pandemic for the last year and a half, almost two years. They have at every possible opportunity been obstructive to uh, other government officials and other levels of government, other bodies um, from uh, doing uh, what they can to protect the health of their uh, constituents. And so because of that, I'm not surprised um, at all that they're that they're trying to, um, you know, hamstring school districts and university systems and local governments um, that are trying to implement uh, things like, you know, mask mandates or vaccine mandates. Um, 
protocols that are designed to help keep folks safe. I, like I said, I, I expected this. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's going to come down because of that to a lot of us, um, you know, putting putting pressure on our neighbors to get vaccinated um, since, you know, clearly our state government is, is not going to be doing that for us. Um, and when I think about, uh, you know, schools, whether it's K-12 or university, um, to Robert's point, um, sort of all going to be opening back up in the fall. Um, it makes me think about how many of those young folks are, are vaccinated. And we have talked about this on previous podcast episodes. So I figured I can give you an update on the numbers. Um, of children between 12 and 15, um, only 35% of those children have received uh, a dose of the vaccine. So that's not even who are fully vaccinated. It's those are who've received at least one dose. Um, 16 to 17 year olds are at 43 and a half percent and 18 to 24 year olds are at 45 percent. Um, you don't cross the the 50 percent mark um, until you are looking at folks in their 30s. So um, there is thankfully an uptick in the number of young people who are getting vaccinated and, and I think there was a push by school districts um, and universities around the state to sort of tell folks, hey, if you want to be fully vaccinated by the time school starts, like this is the week you need to be starting your first course, um, which I think helped, as well as um, sort of the news about the Delta variant and how much more easily it spreads and that even vaccinated folks can transmit it, right? Um, so I, I think all that public pressure is good, um, but to to reach a critical mass, it's going to take us talking to our neighbors. So if you're listening and you, you know, you have a friend or a neighbor or a family member who has a um, K through 12 or university aged child, um, or you're friends with somebody who's in college, you know, like a family friend or something, just be like, hey, are you vaccinated yet? Have you thought about it? Like, you really got to start doing that now before you get into a classroom, uh, like a lecture hall at a university with uh, one to 500 people in it. It's, I think it's gonna, it's gonna take us nudging folks, especially young adults who, you know, may think they're invincible. Uh, Robert, before we go to break, wanna give you one final word. So we only have a minute left in this segment. I want to talk about the race element of this and the, the, the appalling disparities, but I wanna, I will do that after the break. Let me just say now that Claire rightly calls out the individual role because it's what we can do and we all have individual moral obligation do what we can do. And, you know, that the millions of individuals doing the right thing, the millions of family care physicians and others and trusted relatives and friends doing this is making this better overall, which is great. But, you know, with structural issues, this is a structural issue and an effective public health response overall requires strong leadership from trusted leaders, the leaders, the elites in our society, those who have power, and then a coordinated role of government. And the division has completely sabotaged all of this. And it's killing people overseas because we're hoarding vaccine doses as other countries and, and people around the world and the global South would love to have the vaccine. Mostly black and brown people can't get it. So it is horrible. We need everyone to do what they can, but we need better leadership. I mean, call out to Asa Hutchinson for trying as a conservative who actually believes in science, but you see what they've built. They've built a machine and a public opinion that he can't even talk to if you look at the YouTube videos and the cable videos. Well, with that, 
We have got to take our first break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're talking about the surging COVID virus and the response. Robert, wanted to get back to you. I know you had a couple more things you wanted to say before we switch topics. We have a rightful focus on what the modern right wing has doing, the one that has taken over an entire political party. Um, and I'll just say one more thing about the right wing, if I to mention all the revelations of the lawyer, Jeffrey Clark, and the attorney general's office under Trump, who wrote a memo that would have thrown our country into chaos and, and maybe caused a civil war on Trump's behalf and who Trump was going to make acting AG. This is all revelations this week. Our listeners follow this kind of thing. Um, that kind of disinformation where you make up a fake legal case that there was fraud in this election and then put the Department of Justice's imprimatur on it so that Trump and company can reverse a rightful election. That is the same kind of non-factual view, anti-fact view, whatever it takes to win, that we're seeing in COVID-19. They are connected. We tend to see them as separate things. The insurrection, the big lie about democracy, COVID-19 and denial, and the right-wing attempts on Fox News and everywhere else, right-wing politicians to undermine the effort and sabotage it, including Wisconsin, as Claire pointed out, where the UW system It'll harm the UW system and its rankings and effectiveness if it can't be a safe place and Republicans in the legislature led by Steve Knott have effectively blocked common sense action to protect our young people in universities across the state, public universities. But the thing I want to point out, Matt and Claire, is about the racial dimension, which we're aware of, but it gets in, in many ways the more shiny object is what the right is doing. Health Affairs came out with some numbers on the excess death since the pandemic rate, and it is astronomical for African Americans. It shows the, what black, what anti-black racism is beyond any other group, and corrected for class. And it is unbelievable when you see the line charts how much higher it is just for black people, much higher than Hispanic or Asian as well, but also white. And it's corrected by for class. You can see it by class. So middle class and upper middle class black folks are have a much higher death rate than poor white folks. That's how bad structural racism is and anti-black racism in particular, though there's plenty of other racisms and other kinds of bias that we all care about on Battleground Wisconsin. And we're not leaning in. And what is the state of Wisconsin where we have below 30% African-American vaccination rate doing to make sure every single person who wants one can get one. You know, you don't have drug stores that are all over the place in a lot of the north side of Milwaukee where African-Americans live. Where are the, you know, where, where is the, the, the workers hired to go and knock on doors? Because it's not, there is understandable the black community concern based on Tuskegee about vaccines generally, but there's a lot of people who are just very low income and and struggling to get by who are not who are not going through all the bureaucratic mechanisms to get vaccinated and don't have access to a hospital because uh, in the same way other 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 middle class people do. Oh, Claire, sorry. 
Yeah, and sorry, I was going to add that, like, actually, though, to Robert's point, um, I don't know about other parts of the state, but in Milwaukee, those programs exist. I, I know firsthand that that there are public health workers who are hired to knock on the doors in um, starting on Milwaukee's north side of Milwaukee's black community and also and now adding in um, the near south side to Milwaukee's Latino community, knocking on doors and trying to hand out vaccines and they're um, still being met with, understandably to your point, a tremendous amount of hesitancy. Um, and I think one of the things that'll be important is having trusted local leaders going with the hired public health workers to validate um, the sort of the, the message, right? Um, and it's so like, I, for example, um, had a meeting with an alderman from the city of Milwaukee recently when we were talking about, you know, aldermen being trusted, um, trusted, people in the community, right? Like folks who are the are the elected officials that people go to most often with problems, right? Like your alder is in the community, they're the ones you know, and talking about how can alders be leading these vaccine walks to sort of provide their trusted brand in the community to, to try to make people less vaccine hesitant. Um, but the point is yet, yeah, even, even getting vaccines into the communities doesn't, solve the problem on its own. Like we're really gonna have to think creatively about, um, you know, what can we do to address the, you know, totally right mistrust of the medical infrastructure in this country and the community. Robert? Uh, let me just say, you know, Claire makes an important clarification that programs exist. I seriously doubt there is the scale necessary and we don't really know how, what percentage of the non-vaccination is hesitancy versus just it hasn't been offered them in easy enough and clear enough a way. There's no big advertising campaign. Where's that? We weren't using Madison Avenue style ads that we see, we, they're spent, see every night on television for, 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 you know, preparations that allow you to like wear your shorts more, without more confidence. I mean, seriously, or uh, compared to death of COVID. Uh, where are the major hospital systems? They're getting rich and they're supposed to be nonprofit investing massively in this. I have no idea where they are because they operate like for-profit companies, whether that's no matter what they're branding, which is a problem, a huge problem. I just, I don't see the full court press and, and, and we know, Claire knows this, she's in the same circles I am. What real public health expert and health advocates call for long-term for health to close racial disparities, a large permanent core of public health workers that knock on doors and reach people. And that there are programs that are getting in that direction in New Mexico. They're few and far between, and they're not here. Did anyone propose even the money in the governor's state budget that could then be shot down by the Republicans? No, I don't even know that we even had a huge investment to buck up our public health infrastructure, which has been underfunded for decades. And Wisconsin has one of the... Um, uh, one of the, the lowest levels of public health spending in the state. How many people even know that, right? And that's across the, compared to all other states. We're in the low 40s usually out of 50. With that, before we get to our big special guest, which is going to be Sarah Godlewski, State Treasurer Godlewski, who I think everybody knows is running for the United States Senate. We're going to have... Uh, Sarah on for our final two segments to talk about her campaign and our series uh, interviewing Democratic candidates. But before we get to that, we have got to talk about the evictions crisis. We, we mentioned it last week. We talked about the problem uh, with actually getting resources to people in need and how there's structural systemic problems with the way we have for years 
set up how we uh, make those funds available, and that is playing out right now. Uh, but this week, uh, actually, it was over the weekend, uh, we had the very public display uh, led by um, Congresswoman uh, Cori Bush, who herself had been homeless multiple times, uh, basically camping out on the steps of the Congress and saying, we're not going on vacation until we sol solve this immediate problem. Uh, Tuesday, uh, the CDC uh, eviction uh, ban on evictions was extended, not fully, but extended to October 3rd. Um, we just want to give an opportunity for the uh, from comment from the panel. I just want to clarify, and I think we're all in agreement here, this is essentially a Band-Aid, and we need real serious structural reform about evictions. Uh, but it, it, this is a it, an important moment, uh, particularly for our movement to have a leader like Corey uh, uh, Bush step up, but wanted to open it up for comment uh, to either of the panelists, Robert or Claire. Robert? I'll just say that we it, it's amazing what electing progressive champions does, and particularly people who are not just it's it, representational diversity is important, like more black and brown people, folks who have had Cori Bush experience, working class folks, because class and race together is the most toxic thing in our society. And and her capacity to do this and draw empathy was tremendous and her boldness and the boldness of the whole congressional house progressive caucus, congressional progressive caucus here, even forcing a vote, calling out their colleagues for going home on recess rather than taking a vote on this. So, but it's Structurally, this is a Band-Aid. The CDC thing is being evaded. Evictions have gone on because people don't know about it and there's too many little standards, okay? And they allow evictions to continue. And so we need actually to deal with the housing crisis, which is connected to the economic crisis and inequality in this country in a bold way. And that's not being proposed by most Democrats, certainly not moderate Democrats. So we need to be aware it's great that it was extended. And the Biden administration had to turn because of progressive power. But now the question is to get them to do something real about the underlying structures, because we're going back here in October and this U.S. Supreme Court may throw this out quickly because of what of another rigging by the right wing, uh, the right wing majority and what Justice Kavanaugh wrote about the previous policy recently. Claire, you get last word. To bring some important local context to this, it's important to remember that um, these moratoriums and things, they, they depend on compliance from local officials. And in Wisconsin, evictions are most commonly uh, are put forward by, or carried out, I should say, thank you, carried out by uh, the sheriffs. And the sheriff of Racine County has already said that he is not going to abide by it and he'll continue carrying out evictions. And I hope that somebody takes him to court over it and gets an injunction. Uh, so it's important. And that's, that's a local race and a local race that doesn't always get a lot of attention, sheriff's races, right? So this is, shows the importance of being engaged in politics at a local level because they can have a greater impact on people in our community's lives than people who appoint members of the CDC. Great point. And remember, of the $43 billion in rental assistance, a broken program that put the Band-Aid on, only $3 billion has gotten out. So state and local governments, including Wisconsin, Milwaukee, it's not getting out. And that's a state thing, not the city of Milwaukee running the program. There, there, there's a lot of blame to go around here. It goes well beyond the, 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 the right wing and the Republican Party. And with that, though, 
I got to take responsibility for ending this segment. We're going to talk more. We're going to continue to to talk about this issue. Um, We're going to try to have a reporter from the Wisconsin Examiner on to talk more about this. She's done uh, fabulous work on it, but it's a really important issue. And it, again, speaks to the absolute need to have structural solutions and to have more leaders there who actually uh, be willing to support those solutions. And with that, uh, we got to take a break. We'll be back with... Sarah Godlewski, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are really, really fortunate to have our second in our interviews with all of the candidates, the Democratic candidates that are running for the United States Senate. And we're super fortunate to have someone who is a great friend of this show, that is uh, State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, it's great. You've probably been on the show at least eight times, I'm guessing, over the last uh, two to three years. But this appearance is super important because you've made a really critical decision, and that's to run for the United States Senate. Just open by telling our listeners a little bit about why you're doing this. Well, and I just first want to say it's good to be back on the show um, because I was actually just reminiscing about the first time I was on the show. I was just this Western Wisconsin citizen action member in Eau Claire and um, had this crazy idea of trying to save the state treasurer's office and um, talked with my good friend, the organizer at that point, Jeff Smith, who is now Senator Smith, thank goodness, which is exciting for us. And he's like, Sarah, we got to do something. Like, we got we to gotta make this public. Let me talk to the guys and gals at Citizen Action in Milwaukee. And you guys were so nice to have me on. And, uh, you know, despite what everybody said, uh, especially remember Attorney General Brad Schimmel, he literally put in the voting box how the state treasurer's office didn't matter. Um, And we stopped the power grab with 63% of the vote, thanks to a lot of your listeners. Um, And then the next thing you know, I'm on this crazy ride running for office. And um, we co-governed and actually did address economic security, investing in Wisconsin and renewable energy. I mean, things that really matter. So I just wanted to kind of give a shout out because I would not be here if it wasn't for Citizen Action and the partnership that we've had. But that being said, you know, Matt, to answer your question, I never thought that I would be running for the U.S. Senate. But as organizers, you know, when we see something wrong, we've got to stand up and do something about it. And for me, this last year during COVID was awful. I mean, literally our legislature did not meet for 300 days in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, we were dealing with an economic crisis, a health crisis, and oh, by the way, a social justice crisis at the same time. And thanks to Robin Boss, they decided to take a taxpayer vacation. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. And so for me, it became really clear that I was going to have to use my executive authority and quite frankly, be Wisconsin scrappy without any additional resources from the federal government, any additional resources from the state. And, you know, one of the first things I did was I uh, called our schools because I'm a, um, I managed that $1.2 billion trust fund that helps public schools. And 
teachers were telling me how their kids were driving to McDonald's parking lot to get Wi-Fi. And I'm, you know, talking to Senator Johnson's office saying, what are we doing for public schools and the CARES Act? And he's like, not my problem. And I go, but it is your problem. And we're seeing people who are underemployed and underemployed through no fault of their own and asking, what are you doing to address the foreclosure crisis? And he's like, not my problem, but it is his problem. And so after he just kept saying, not my problem, I'm worried about the debt. And I just was like, enough is enough. Like this guy clearly does not care about Wisconsin. He only cares about himself. And while I'm sitting here doing everything I can with no additional resources, like this isn't fair to Wisconsin. And we deserve somebody who's going to fight, has a proven record of getting things done. And as a fifth generation Wisconsinite, I just couldn't sit on the sidelines and um, got in this race. So that is um, why I am here. You know, I think it just goes back to the heart and soul of an organizer. You just got to roll up your sleeves and get things done. Claire? Thanks, Sarah. Um, I really appreciate that you talked about um, how your interactions with Senator Johnson influenced your decision to run for U.S. Senate and to to get into this race. Um, And then sort of before that, how you uh, decided to run for state treasurer to begin with. So I feel like we have a good understanding of sort of like who you are and why you're in this movement. Uh, I was wondering is, because my interest is always healthcare, um, I was wondering if you could <laughs> talk to us a little bit about some of the issues that you're running on that you think are central to your campaign. Um, thinking about things like the expensive cost of healthcare, the expensive cost of uh, prescription drugs. And if you're hearing from your constituents about those issues and and how they're playing out in your campaign platform? Yeah, no, I mean, I just was recently talking with a guy a few weeks ago who was literally sharing a story with me about how he is skipping his life-saving prescription drugs um, because he simply can't afford it. So he takes his drugs on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and he doesn't take it on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday because he feels like if he ta- doesn't take him over the weekend and something happens, like he has a lot more flexibility. Um, and this is nuts to me because we as taxpayers pay for the research and development for these major pharmaceutical companies to develop these drugs. And then we're not allowed to negotiate them on the back end. And we have folks that are buying it from Canada or Europe who can negotiate. It's just completely inexcusable. And it's quite frankly, corporate abuse and on the backs of middle-class folks that are paying for this stuff. And so we've got to do everything we can. And to me, this is a low hanging fruit because if our population isn't healthy, then we're not going to get anywhere fast. You know, I will say, Claire, the other thing that I keep kind of hearing too, um, in addition to kind of this larger economic security um, conversation. And I don't know if they feel like people can share it to me because I'm a working mom and they want to talk about it. But I have now talked to so many moms who are just burned out. Um, and they had to make a decision between this pandemic and quitting their job or taking care of their family, uh, because the lack of paid family leave. And it was awful for them. And we're seeing these in the numbers, you know, me as the you know, chief financial officer for the state, we have now more women out of the workplace in the last three decades. And it's not because women don't want to be in the workplace. It's that 
they either have to make a decision between taking care of their family or a sick one or going to work. Um, and if that's not enough, we have seen that affordable childcare is just simply not an option. I mean, at the height of the pandemic, we saw almost 40% of childcare centers were closed. So what were working families supposed to do? And we don't have things like universal pre-K? I mean, this to me is something that I am um, really passionate about. And when I talk to folks about this too, Claire, they'll say, why aren't we getting this done in Congress? And to me, I think part of it is that in the past, we've talked about these policies being luxuries or nice to haves. And I'm like, for who? Because for working moms and for working families, it's absolutely critical. And I think by having a working mom at the U.S. Senate table, we can help change that and make these more front and center and fighting for these issues that matter. Yeah, I'm going to ask everything I ask you, I'm going to try to tell you the framework, right? And then I'll apply it to things, right? So I think you are, and you've shown this in both saving the treasurer's office and as you point out as an organizer with a lot of help, but with you, without you, it doesn't happen, in my opinion, just to throw back the, the compliment, because uh, you compliment the movement and all the activists, and rightly so, um, there, you've made government work with very few resources. And the Treasurer's depart, uh, Department, you know, under the, the, that, you know, the, in Wisconsin has been, it had its duties removed over the years. There's been a concentration of power in the governor's office, which was deliberate. And it was a way to reduce in many ways democratic assent uh, to major decisions. And so like uh, Scott Walker didn't want an independent treasurer deciding how he did his budget. So and, and uh, so there's that. And you're 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 a credible pioneer there, though. I'm interested how you apply that to the U.S. Senate, where there's a lot more power, right, to do things. And I think that's true. Not obviously Republicans like Ron Johnson, Robin Voss don't want to use government for these purposes. So you have to want to in order to do it well. But I do think that there's a lot of things we leave on the table that we don't do well, uh, as we could even with current resources and in current structures. But there's a second part of these things uh, where it's structural and you can't get to the ultimate end we want without changing the structures. There are limits to what you can do, right? I think there are limits to what you can do, for example, with rental assistance. It's not a program designed to end evictions. It's more of a Band-Aid that you really have to deal with the housing crisis and economic inequality and the lack of family supporting jobs. But there are things you can do with public housing and other housing policies, like how, you, how we structure the vouchers as well. And I know we're going to go break, so you won't be able to get very far. But on prescription drugs, you told me, told us something, all of us on Battleground, something very important that is being blocked by a big lobby and by Republicans. Common sense, we should negotiate, uh, at least for, for Medicare, over prescription drug prices because we're paying a fortune for that. Um, but there are, I would say, even broader also structural reform issues around intellectual property around the idea which you mentioned that we pay for the research and all the basic research it's based on, and then we give them a monopoly to do what they will and charge what they will, big corporations that report to Wall Street. And I'm interested in what you would set, do about the second phase where we have to make structural changes, um, though understanding you're totally right, there's huge advances we could make with the system we have now as well. So I know we're going to break. And that, uh, but I, I'll use Christian drugs as an example because you brought it, made an excellent use of the example yourself in your platform. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and then 
Treasurer Godlewski, candidate Godlewski, we want to hear your response to that on the back end. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back. Hey, Treasurer Godlewski, we've everyone's been through the break, long-awaited response to what Robert laid out. (laughs) These really critical, important aspects around structural change. Yeah, I mean, Robert, you know, something that I continue to hear to your point when I travel across the state is, why is Washington gridlocked? Why can't they get anything done? It's infuriating. We send our people to Washington to do work and they come back and they're like, I tried, I tried. And you're like, but why? Um, And so for me, you know, my background's actually in peace and conflict resolution. And I really wanted to think through like, what's going on? Like, how can we change the system? And for me, it became quite clear that the filibuster is actually being used as a tool to not drive compromise, to in fact further drive conflict and not get anything done for our country and quite frankly, for the people of Wisconsin. And people will say, well, aren't you worried, Sarah, it's going to be used against us? But we've actually seen how people have come together for major reforms. I mean, case in point, Obamacare. We worked so hard to make sure that we have healthcare and we all saw through reconciliation how the Trump administration tried to get rid of that. But Susan Collins, um, Lisa Murkowski, and we all remember the famous vote that we were waiting for until midnight and John McCain did the famous thumbs down and we saved healthcare for this country and people came together. And so for me, you know, we talk about these important progressive policies we want to get done, whether it's from the environment to prescription drugs to a tax system that actually works for everybody, not just the top 1%. But to me, the only way we're going to be able to get these things done is by getting rid of the filibuster so we can truly, at the end of the day, allow the majority to rule. Because right now, I do not believe that is happening. Um, and we're not going to be able to get anything done until we change it. Um, and that is something that I think we've got to do and something that is first and foremost, when you talk about these structural changes that I think are impeding on our ability to actually serve the people of Wisconsin in Washington. Let me ask you a quick follow-up on Rx, Precision Drugs, but I know I want to leave room for the rest of the panel because uh, you talked about negotiating, right? This is on the whole question of structural, what, what we need to change at structural in nature and how could we make government work better, which I completely agree. There's a lot we can get there, but not everything we want as progressives. Uh, you know, there, I, I mentioned intellectual property and whether you give them this unlimited monopoly where they can charge whatever they want when we pay for the, the cert, pay for the research. And on top of that, where this is not something like a, I don't know, like a cable package. This is life and death. We could argue you can't operate this way with something that is life and death, like life-saving medications. Uh, so let me give you uh, even more specific, because you know, on the left, there are people who are proposing, including our coalition, like public production of drugs. I'm not asking you to take a position on that right now, uh, prescription drugs. Uh, mm-hmm. But m- let me give you a, a structural reform thing that is very related to COVID-19. The United States led in the 1980s creating uh, pharmaceuticals as intellectual property. This was the behest of the pharmaceutical lobby as part of global trade regime, the global trade regime that has deindustrialized this country. And now that is why 
all of these uh, countries in the global south that are poor cannot simply produce their own vaccine because of that. Now, Biden, Joe Biden, to his credit, backed down and uh, he wasn't going to do this originally and supported, at least he uh, put our country behind uh, kind of what would you say, pausing mental property. I guess my question is, but Germany has been blocking it and the pharmaceutical industry has all sorts of ways to block it beyond the, U- the official position of the U.S. Uh, would you be for, because that is denying life-saving drugs beyond COVID vaccine to l- low-income black and brown people around the world, because the same kind of disparities in race, uh, race in terms of economics are true on a global scale, even more than the U.S., which is shocking, but true. My question is, would you be for renegotiating those trade agreements and removing uh, that, that basically sweetheart deal for pharmaceutical industry to deny people basic medications and charge a price that the people in these countries could, cannot afford when they're on, a, on subsistence income? Yeah, I think it's a a really good point, Robert, and we're seeing it, as you just mentioned, during COVID. Um, I mean, for starters, thank God we're now back with the World Health Organization. I mean, the fact that the United States was not even a member of the World Health Organization during a pandemic, which was so easily transmitted. Um, And we now just saw the World Health Organization release um, something today that, or was it yesterday, where they said that they don't want people to get boosters because they just want to finish low income and struggling countries to just get the first vaccination because they haven't gotten it um, to make sure we have equal distribution because we have to understand at the end of the day, we're in this together. I mean, this virus is so dangerous globally. We can't just isolate ourselves from it and everybody else. And so I think to your point, Robert, we got to figure out, and this is a really good way when you kind of talk about systemically, why are these things is happening to make sure that when we are dealing with things that really impact world populations, um, that we are taking that community approach and evaluating to make sure our populations are healthy at the end of the day. And because if, you know, what happens in Asia and in Europe will eventually happen here when it comes to a very quickly, easily transmittable disease, if we don't get it under control and collaboratively we have to work together to do this. And so um, for me, I think that's something that's that's really important. And honestly, Robert, I saw that too with my work with UNICEF. You know, I was really active in UNICEF internationally. And part of our role was making sure we had vaccines for polio and just things that, um, again, could resurface. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is something that we continue to see over and over again. And we've got to get at the root problem of it when kind of evaluating the big picture when it comes to world health. Health and, and populations. You'd apply that to all medications, right? That's what I'm hearing you say. Great. Okay. Go ahead, Matt. Sorry, I took so much time on that. Claire. Uh, yes, I look, I could talk about prescription drug affordability all day, every day, but I know that our listeners probably want to hear about other topics <laughs> as well. Um, so another area that I work on here at Citizen Action is uh, tax reform. Mm. And um, since you are a state treasurer, I thought that you might have some strong feelings about financial things in this country. And, and uh, I think tax reform um, and specifically things like wealth taxes um, and sort of ultra millionaire taxes have been proposals at the federal level for quite some time for how we will pay for some things like um 
you know, lowering prescription drug prices and, uh, you know, Medicare for all, think, right, things like that. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us some thoughts on how you see, um, you know, tax reform as sort of a way to put healthcare over wealth care or to prioritize, um, you know, low and middle income folks over the ultra wealthy as sort of like a value for policymaking when you're in the So, system. Claire, you're you're singing my love language. I mean, this to me is a front and center issue because it's very clear as we are watching billionaires have so much money, they can just blast off into space. It, you know, we've got clearly two systems. We have one for the wealthy and corporations and one for everybody else. I mean, I was just talking with my parents about this last week. They're two public school teachers. They pay a higher percentage in taxes than Jeff Bezos. I mean, what is wrong with this country? And further, we look at the Trump tax cuts. They didn't do us any favors either. And how Ron Johnson, I mean, he literally wrote in additional corporate loopholes for his own family business, not helping middle-class families or Wisconsinites, helping himself. And so for me, this is something that is really near and dear to me. And I think that there are a handful of things we need to do to make sure that the system actually works. And because right now we have a system where we don't tax wealth and we've got to change that. You know, a few things that I think about that are even like low hanging fruits that we should start doing yesterday. I mean, one of them is we've got to lower the tax burden on middle-class families because we right now tax income, not wealth. And who carries that burden? It's the middle class. And it's, it's like, you know, working families. The other thing that we've got to do is we've got to make these child tax cuts permanent. I mean, the fact that we are finally giving money to families for kids is, is a game changer. And we've got to think about that framework, not only making that permanent, but what are other ways we can think about tax credits and helping actually working families and getting that money. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that just blows my mind is these corporate tax giveaways. I mean, literally the fossil fuel industry had over $35 billion in tax subsidies, the fossil fuel industry. So we're talking about how we want to transition to clean energy, but we're still as taxpayers subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. I mean, this is crazy. Think about what we could do with $35 billion. I mean, we could do a lot in making a big difference in this country. And so it's, and there are more of these tax giveaways and corporation, corporate giveaways that are just unnecessary and could help us actually fund things like universal pre-K, help us fund prescription drugs and a lot of things that it continues. And so to me, um, I think, you know, people ask me what committee I want to be on or where I would want to be. Um, and Claire, this is exactly where I would want to be in the U.S. Senate, because I think that there is a lot of improvements that need to be made with our tax system um, to make sure that working families actually are able to get a fair shake, because right now they're not. All right. Well, soak it in, listeners. That was quite a different vision than what we have with our current U.S. Senator, or quite frankly, you know, it is definitely a vision we uh, all have been waiting to hear. But thank you. Uh, Sarah Godlewski for joining us today and taking the time to talk with us uh, and tell us about your campaign. We really appreciate it. But before you go, uh, tell our listeners who really want to get involved how they should uh, get involved in your campaign. 
Yes. No. So again, thank you guys for having me. Um, and uh, we are a grassroots people centric campaign. And so to learn more and to get involved, it's Sarah for Wisconsin.com and it's with an H and it's all spelled out and there's opportunities to volunteer and uh, we are engaged across the state because that's how we win is by engaging everybody. So thanks, Matt. Robert and Claire for having me. It's always great to talk with you and thanks for the work you do every day for the citizens of Wisconsin. Well, Sarah, we really appreciate it. And one of the things we appreciate most is that you have been someone who's led by seeing problems and put yourself out there and run for office. And we want to encourage more people uh, just throughout our movement uh, uh, to do that and lean into their leadership. And so we appreciate that about you. Thanks also so much for joining us today. Thank you. And with that, we have to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. Of course, we thank candidate Godlewski for joining us. And of course, we also want to thank Brian Wildridge, our producer, who makes this podcast and beautiful show happen every week. Folks, stay safe out there. Take this stuff seriously. Mask up when you go inside. And we'll see y'all next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.